Welcome, everyone, to the Super Angel podcast. We're delighted to have you here today, and we're even more delighted to have Harsh Sinha joining us. Welcome to the podcast, Harsh. Thank you so much for having me. Is this a dream? No, it's not a dream. I'm an angel. Why would God send me an angel? Because God knows that everyone needs a little coaching now and then. I'm loving angels. I saw an angel. All angels say, This show is not investment advice, and the hosts of this episode may be invested in the funds and companies featured. Yeah, thanks for joining us, Harsh. I mean, eBay, PayPal, Wise, uh, what experience is there? You know, excited to have you on and to share more. Do you want to start by sharing a bit more about your journey and, you know, what got you into angel investing in the first place? Yeah, so... um you know, just going back, uh, I've been a builder all my life, like creating products and different experiences for customers. So started off as an intern in the uh, 2004 timeframe after the dot-com burst in the Bay Area at eBay and then quickly moved to full-time. And then through my journey, um, spent about 10 years building products at eBay and PayPal. And that was across a wide spectrum of, um, uh, of things and problems that we solve for customers. So I started off as core engineering, looking at how we scale applications and distributed systems. So working more as a performance engineer. At those times, it was pretty cool that if you said you were a performance engineer at a web company, there were not a lot of teams like this on the planet at that time. I think there were like eBay, uh, eBay and PayPal, Amazon had one, Yahoo, Hotmail, which was you know MSN and Microsoft. Um, and then uh, and there were a few others, but generally, if you looked at web scale or web scale, and Google, of course, had one, but like web scale was still coming up to, you know, the number of computes and number of transactions per second was still much lower than they are today. But in the earlier days, there were very few companies which had separate teams looking at performance in uh, scale at, uh, on the internet the way we were. So it was pretty fun times, um, small team, but that helped me understand what it means to build an amazing performing product across uh, across the world. And then I moved that into actually building experiences. So spent time um, building uh, parts of eBay Motors, which I'm a car enthusiast. So a lot of things that were close to my heart. Most people don't know this, but I think at that time we had some numbers that 2.5 billion of GMV of eBay, it was a $5 billion uh, business. 2.5 billion GMV was from parts and accessories. And then the half of it was from selling vehicles or getting leads to, uh, to dealers. And we sold a part. So if you had a hobby car and you're looking for a part in a 1965 Chevy, where would you go? You would usually go to your local salvage yard, which would be good luck finding that specific part, or you'd go to the one of the biggest marketplaces um, where eBay had this. So it was a pretty big product uh, and fast-growing product. So that was fun to build. It has a lot of intricate complexities around how do you build search on this. And then we're not going to build other products, uh, including acquiring a company where we tried our hand at uh, doing a local delivery product, eBay Now, and then ended up spending time from there to building um, the PayPal, iterating the PayPal product with the PayPal mobile app. And then finally... Around 2014, Krista and Tarvet, the founders of Wise, um, or TransferWise at that time, found me 
and we started talking about me potentially moving from not so sunny San Francisco to not so sunny London for a while to try and build and scale what now has become a pretty global company uh, wise, where we help people manage their finances and spend, send, receive funds across the world. One thing I realized, I did, did a segue in the middle went and did an MBA at Berkeley. I was trying to think maybe I should do a career switch, like I had my midlife crisis a bit early. Tried to, yeah, to think whether I should be a consultant, whether I should be an investment banker. In my Berkeley journey, tried to uh, did an actual role um, in consulting for about a summer, where I actually went to Israel and worked there uh, with, uh, with the government on a project. And then uh, very quickly realized consulting is not my cup of tea. I like things implemented and seen to the end of the line and actually see how users use it. And investment banking also, the more I learned about it, was not my cup of tea. So I realized I was right where I, where I started, which was I like being a builder. But through that journey and with my you know, 20 years, over the last 20 years, I've met a lot of builders. One of the things that I really enjoy is the passion that people who are solving the problem bring to the table and how they get obsessed with solving that problem in the world. So my angel investing foray was basically from that. I have a notebook that I still keep, that I have ideas that one day I would want to solve. And I met other people with these notebooks. And some of them were actually, I was jealous of because they were actually working on items on the notebook where my notebook is still on my desk. So, so that passion drove me to you know, start working with some of them and understanding why they're focusing the next 10 years of their life on this problem. And from there on, other ways I can help them. And that passion would like actually get me excited about what they're building. And also it get me, got me to learn a lot about those specific problems very quickly. So that's how I basically started working with, you know, early stage company, working with founders. Uh, and that still is the number one reason why I do this, is uh, just to meet people working on different problems, different industries, and just very smart people trying to solve the problem in a different way. Oh, what a story and what an angle. I mean, I'm, go I'm gonna go slightly off script and then come back just by saying that I think you bring a, you know, very unique angle um, to it, right? I mean, having been, you know, at you know, very technical background and having scaled technical teams, you know, would love to hear a bit more. Like, how do you think about assessing those founders and companies with that technical angle in mind? It's, it's interesting how things have changed, actually. Like, if you asked me even 10 years ago or eight years ago, would I ever take a team without a technical founder seriously, the big company, I would say they're smoking something. I think now, actually, given the tools and some of the things that exist now around no-code no code stuff, and like you can actually get some of the stuff up and running if you have a particular other skill that uh, you bring to the table, and you can get it to an MVP uh, where you can actually start showing some traction. So it, 10 years ago, without any technical founder, I would say, good luck. Um, you should go find a technical founder. Now I think you still you have a advantage if you have a technical founder. But um, you could get some traction. I'll give you an example. I mean, I've invested in a company which is, the core thesis is around analyzing real estate contracts. You know, the founders are amazing because I think one of them has an economics uh, degree and the other one is a lawyer. And actually that probably applies more to the business than just bringing the tech in. So I invested in them early on because they're very really passionate about the idea they were able to explain to me how broken the commercial 
underwriting system is for buying buildings and what are the gotchas there and how they could actually build a much better setup. But then a lot of this was driven off training, of giving a product to paralegals and these like lawyers and these companies who do this underwriting and learning from their work how to build a smarter system. And this is before like ChatGPT and stuff. Uh, and they got quite a bit of traction before COVID hit, of course, and impacted their business because commercial real estate deals died. And now they're on the other side where they're like, you know, using a lot more AI and LLMs to even analyze these documents. But this is a classic example of not, they're technical, but they're in their own space, but they're not like your pure technical co-founders. Um, but then they were able to hire actually one of the people they hired. I did their final run interview for them for that CTO hire. And uh, this turned out to somebody that I interviewed before too. So, um, so there are pieces that I've seen now that uh, even if you don't have a pure technical team from a, I can write code perspective, you can take a challenge and move forward. Harsh, it's, it's, like we, it's like we set this up, but, but we really didn't because we're also co-investors at Seacamp in, in Orbital Witness. And I know Ed and Will super well, so they completely agree. They're just they're founders who can articulate the problem so, so clearly. I also came from a, a, a legal background prior to, to Seacamp. So I remember when I met them, I was like, this is a problem that needs to be solved. And, and those guys seemed an ideal fit to do it and, and, and also agree with the, the technical talent they've built around. It's, it's put the company to a great spot. So it's great that you've been able to guide them in, in that way as well. Oh no, thought about the thesis. Kind of changing into, or like going even further into the investment pieces and strategy and how, how you think through your, your angel investing. One bit which we'd, I'd, I'd love to get you to kind of expand on is a little bit about, you know, where you are with your angel investing now. Obviously, you know, when you maybe started making the first investments, you know, it, it, was it earlier in your career or was it at, at a certain point, almost like maybe even what the trigger was for you to think, what, what wanted you to, to go into that? And then also how, how far through you are in terms of like ticking off those things in, your, in the book you described of the, the ideas. We'd love to let's spend a little bit of time on that one. Yeah, so actually just going back a little bit, I think a lot of people start off this way in Angel. Um, at least most of the people I know, they start off by just helping a few mates, right? And, uh, you know, helping other builders build stuff. They get excited about the idea they're working on. They get obsessed along with them. They're doing these weekend calls. And then suddenly you're like, oh, you're raising money? Of course, it's going to be great. So you give them some money and you get on with it, right? Um, so I did that around 2012, 13. To be noted, all of them have gone bust. They were horrible. <laughs> they were horrible ideas, right? Um, or not horrible ideas, but like, you know, ideas were good, execution. There's so much to building a company than just ideas, right? So I realized, um, you know, I do this retro every year and, and the end of the year and how the year went. And one of the things that started popping up was like, oh, I did these like interesting small, small checks and what happened to these companies and how the fund is doing. And uh, basically my retro was like, I was doing more charity than really angel investing. Um, so so I, had, you know, I had to take a very, very objective approach to like remove myself from this bias. I said, okay, this is kind of weird because now I'm, and also it might impact my friendships, right? So what I should do is be more objective. So how could I be more objective? is by being blind a little bit. So I have no association with these folks. And I'm going to look at every deal that it comes through on the face value, given a deck, given presentations. But then how do you get this deal flow? So I actually just found AngelList and I started joining some syndicates, pitched myself into a few syndicates, started getting some deals flow that way, 
and you know, like I ended up investing in a um, furniture company. Uh, it's called Burrow. I'm not on their uh, cap table. I'm just through uh, an STV in there. They've done CBC now. It's fine, going slowly, but it's fine. But you know, they're doing fine for the uh, furniture industry. But I learned a lot about the furniture industry. Right now, every time I'm showed it, I'm walking by loaf. I'm like, hmm, how is this different than Burrow? And like, you know, trying to like look at the product. Um, what those deals taught me was actually very quickly helped me learn a lot about what do founders share? What do investors ask? And some SPVs are better. Like they were actually coaching us in the earlier days through this process of, you know, like I didn't know that you should be asking for prorata. What the hell is prorata? <laughs> you know, I mean, obviously as a small person, you cannot, like, you know, as a big, big vehicle, you can't. But what does it even mean? Why do you want that? What does it mean from a dilution perspective? So it actually taught me a lot by just dipping my feet a little bit into AngelList and getting these deals going. And then through that, I got some confidence on the thesis that I was running, which my thesis is not like I should do one industry, I should do one type of company. I just kind of go pretty broad and look at what's interesting that's happening. And then from there on, I went to, um, that helped me basically start doing direct deals. So by that time, you know, I think I did my first big direct deal in 2018 when my uh, son was just born. So uh, in fact, I still don't think Carter, the founder knows this, but uh, I took calls in the middle of the night because he was in, or early morning, because he was in Estonia, I think. And uh, he thought I was waking up early for his calls to take the call with him, but I was up because my son was crying and I had to be sitting in the middle of the night too, so I took those calls too. But it was, that's my journey basically. So failing with a few friends who had great ideas and I was too emotionally vested on to going completely the opposite side where I started to be too objective. And then now I've kind of found a middle ground where most of my deals are. There's some connection to the people, usually a people connection somehow. Uh, it's how I got uh, the deal on my, on my inbox and my inbox. No, super, super interesting to see that kind of evolution. And, and as you think through other, cause you mentioned there obviously about like indexing on, on the people, but, are there sectors that you'll kind of lean into more because of your experience and obviously having yeah. worked at, at eBay and such um, senior roles and then now obviously with the as CTO at, at Wise? Or, or are there, is it kind of that you actually stay away from some of those sectors because we know yeah. angel investors who have that deep domain expertise can kind of go almost one of both ways? Yeah, so I am pretty broad. I do think that it's a selection bias is generally in their deal flow, um, even what deals show up on your, on in your inbox. So, it's not, I was just looking through the list that I maintain of all companies I've invested in before this call, and I can see like there's definitely earlier days I had a much bigger bias. Even I think there was a bias in what was showing up to me was more payments companies. So I can see a theme: this payments or something to do with finances. There is. Uh, SMB subscription products that I'm seeing. And then there's other things like, you know, real estate. I've got things around trucking in India, enabling to improve the efficiency and tracking of trucks. Like it's a very big industry in India, but like it's such an antiquated technology and trucks, trucking system that we're using. So like, how do you improve efficiency for truck owners? Um, which is a very kind of out there problem a different problem. So um, I think earlier on, yes, there was a bias for payments and marketplaces. Now I think we're pretty diverse. Just jumping in with one more question, which is usually a conundrum we see um, as, as angel investors, right? Which is, you know, capacity and time. You know, portfolio theory tells you 
diversify, the more you institutionalize and you get to know about Parada, you get to know also about you know, the, the statistics of it. So how do you think about that trade-off between portfolio diversification versus having capacity to support those founders? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough one. I, I struggle with this a lot. So I get, I said, like, I fall in love with ideas. I fall in love with people. And that's what I want to invest in. And then very quickly, I have to be conscious. Can I spend time with them? And that bar has gone higher and higher because now as I've got more people uh, and on more people in the list who have already invested in, I'm getting paid. So maybe my bar should have been higher in the early days. And I think you should have a higher bar in the early days because you just get kind of like very quickly caught up into like, I want to be part of these amazing ideas and amazing problems that people are solving. One trick that I have learned, uh, and I think I was telling you, Anthony, was um, I've been able to luckily work with some more established EC firms, big firms, or earlier stage firms in Europe, in the US, where I've become part of their expert network too. So what they'll do is they'll kind of send me some deal flow too, more from an intro, from a perspective of, hey, uh, we think Harsh might be helpful for you at this stage of the company. You should talk. And they know that I will look at all deals, not just, uh, not just payments. But that's helped me kind of have a little bit of a filter and allows me to spend my time more wisely versus just spending a lot of time with you know, a broad spectrum of people. I'm sure I'm missing some folks that I would like to spend time with, but I just have to, you know, building wise is more than a full-time job. So I'm still doing this on the side. So I have to kind of prioritize that. It's so fascinating, you know, your story, Harsh, and some of the companies you've worked at, and particularly now with this, with such a key leadership role at Wise. It's almost like scale. You've seen such scale in the companies you've been part of, and now Wise is, you know, like it's, it's, it's pushing through so much um, money on a monthly basis. Like when you look now at these super early stage opportunities, how do you assess whether those kind of founders and those companies can go on that journey? You know, how do you see, because you've actually seen scale, you know, it's so rare to like have someone, even, even on this podcast, and we're really privileged to speak to some amazing angel investors, but to have really seen like scale in a technology company like you have. And when you sit down with these founders, I'd love to to see if there's any insights you can give to maybe me and Anthony or anyone listening about how you'd assess whether they can go on that journey. I think that's a tough one. I think generally I'm not assessing whether you will be able to scale the level where Wise is reached, or PayPal reached, or eBay reached, it's kind of, and when you look at early stage, you have to look at the personality and the person. Like, so I, I like to ask the question, like, okay, will, why would you spend the next decade of your life building this and working on this problem? And that's really interesting how founders answer that, right? You know, some founders are, I think it's a good business problem. I think nobody's attacked this space. Okay, you could be very smart, but I think generally that, answer the fire in the belly goes out quickly i think people who had a personal uh, journey on that with the problem they usually tend to have a bigger fire in the belly to solve the problem right again this is very you know cliche and very like you know, high no, level it's perfect. but i think it perfect. does it does uh, it does come true and ring true so far i also look at what have they done before like how did do they have scar tissue it's like what i would say and scar tissue comes by doing. So I'm not saying there aren't like amazing young founders coming out you know, from college and building amazing companies. But if you look at the success rate, a lot of people who have like been able to do sustained performance and sustained scaling 
they've done something which has been previously hard to. And I think that that helps again build that. So if there's something in firing a belly because of the reason why you're chasing the problem, or you've got some scale because you've done something hard before, right? But I think those things are the things you look for. Afterwards, scalers can be hired. It's not the hardest problem. If you are in the lucky position that you have a great business, people will be like bending, bending on backwards to come help you build. Then your problem is like, how do you pick the right scalers to help you build? Right? Let's go a bit more and, and talk a bit you, you know, about your core learnings from angel investing. Out here learning more about them angels, are you? So, you know, if you had to share three core learnings, and maybe you've already touched on some already, what would those be? Number one, early stage, it's all about the team. And the way I look at it still is, does the team have a hustler and a hacker? So usually I think two people teams are great because everybody knows, like any relationship, you'll have your good and bad days and these things are hard. So you want somebody beside you building with you. So for a tech company, if it's a tech solution or anything to do with like scaling and large numbers and is powered by tech, you need to have a hustler, as in somebody who can paint the vision, maybe sales, maybe marketing, something that they can really get out there and get their early customers and be passionate about being in front of people and selling. Even if it's a consumer business, how do you get those first 10, 20, 100, 100,000 customers? And then the hacker is obviously needed to just build the product, right? So that's one thing I look at, but it's all about the team. And then you check, the thing I check for is, do they have the ability to work through first principles? So there's a lot of like copycat ideas, especially back in the day in Europe. I think Europe's not by better, but back in the day, there's a lot of copycat ideas of like, I'm Uber for blah, and actually I'm just Uber for, you, for Europe. Like, you know, um, and some of those companies have done well, but generally I think you have to work through first principles of why this problem in this market, why is this the right time, and can they articulate that? And then the final bit on this one is, still the first one, by the way, is with, why will they spend the next decade of their life building this, right? So that's the team, right? So a hustler and a hacker, can they take on first principles and they, will they spend the next 10 years building this? Second insight for me was um, be careful of your own bias. I think you referred this. Um, I was getting a lot of payments companies in the beginning. It's kind of funny, like founders, I think need to be naive and bold. Sometimes the biggest problem solvers are not from their own industry, so they're kind of naive to let go. We can do this differently. But as an angel, you're seeked out for your expertise a lot of times. But you should also try to be a little naive. And I'll give you an example on this one. So I probably missed out the biggest return on an angel investment a few years ago, where I met this uh, founder working on improving check payments and enabling businesses to get paid by checks and moving them online uh, in the US. Amazing founder, amazing story, amazing hustle. But um, I was so obsessed with ACH chargebacks. If you've ever worked in the US payment system, ACH chargebacks is a big problem, right? And my entire journey of the last 20 years of building eBay, PayPal, and Wise, I was like, what about ACH chargebacks? Have you thought about this? And I just wrote him off thinking, he has not thought about this. This is going to be a car crash. It's $4 billion valuation today. I would have been in the earlier rounds. So that tells you, like, don't be, I, you should be thinking about the industry, but you have to be a little naive because you have to believe in the person going back to the first stage. Fall in love with the team, think about first principles, and don't try to apply your, all your learnings on them because then 
you're too, you're becoming the industry player, right? So, and then the third one is, um, I actually think this is a very bad business to be in if you're just doing it for returns. Like I think angel investors are actually pretty poor returns overall. Like you can get massive returns, but I think if you look at everybody who says they're an angel investor in the world, given the deal flow that you can get and how you get access to it, and there's so much competition, and now big firms, VC firms, also going like super early. I think it's actually, if you just dare to maximize your returns, you're probably going to be unhappy. I think what you need to have is another reason why you should be in this business. I mean, for me, it's the first principles that I had, which was I love meeting people who are passionate about an idea, learn about the industry. Why is this idea worthwhile solving? And along the way, if I can help them, that's great. And then if I make some returns, that's great. But I would, you know, if I looked at my spreadsheet, there's a clear chance that a lot of these will go to zero. In fact, some of them have started going to zero now, right? So I just had one company that, you know, they got acquired, but it was basically a talent acquisition. And uh, I got to return back the whole, after the whole deal, 42 cents on my entire investment, <laughs> which, was, which came back to my bank account. So very on the up and up. Would I invest in the founder again? Yes. But, you know, the outcomes are, you know, not as create all the time because we only talk about success stories, right? So you have to be in it, I think, for more than just returns because you're taking very early bets. And like, you know, some of them, the bets I've taken, they'll be fine. Like, you know, they'll pay the entire portfolio out. But it's just, you can't be in this, I think, for just chasing for returns. I think that's my thesis. You should be doing it for something else too, along with the returns. Even beyond that, right? If you're there only for the returns, it's a, I'm taking it back to kind of us, right? Seed investors or angel investors in different micro funds, right? There's so many ways to make scaled returns that are much more efficient, right? I think most kind of seed investors are slightly rational and doing it about the passion of the craft first. Of course, if you're doing it professionally, hopefully at the top 1%, you'll do extremely well, right? That's the industry we're in, but definitely can identify uh, with, with that. And I could actually very much identify with a second because I'm increasingly doing more and more uh, fintech, which is what I've done. And I always obsess about making sure I'm proven constantly wrong and I'm first principles thinker and doing it at pre seed. It's all about meeting the next great person that's going to prove me 100% wrong. On the first bit, the one thing that I've you know increasingly spending time on with either senior operators about to start a new business or uh, founders about to do their next uh, thing, especially on the former category, right? On the one hand, it's obvious the reason why you should have a co-founder uh, for many reasons. On the other hand, sometimes it's, it's quite hard. Uh, and also, you know, brute forcing such a partnership can be tough. And a lot of the failure in the early days comes from founder fights. I mean, what are your views on that? This, you know, you have a solo founder in front of you uh, versus, you know, brute forcing such relationships or is it not just a trade-off at all? Like anything in life, you can't have an absolute rule, right? So you will have exceptions. Uh, and yes, I have seen my fair share of founder, founder fights, like way too many. I still think that this is the composition that kind of comes naturally because building a company is very, very hard. So you want, even in those founder fights, actually, when things come to the end or like the hill, there still is a lot of respect in that relationship because they've gone through some of the journey together. So even though they might've fallen out, there will be a mutual respect and you'll see them invest in each other's companies over time because there's a lot of professionalism there. But yeah, I agree. Like, you know, if there is an amazing idea and an amazing founder with enough fire in his or her belly to go at it, then you know, I, would, I would still fund 
uh, and I was in luck with them. But it's definitely a reason for me to look at going deeper as to, if this is such a great idea, how come there's not another person in the world who we can convince to join you? Because if you can't, then how do you convince the next 100,000 people as customers to join you if it's a you know, business or consumer? So I think that's a question that I always ask. doesn't necessarily mean the answer is always that there'll be two people. Harsh, I'd love to ask a little bit about the learnings you might have had of you know, being such a senior operator on both sides of the Atlantic and whether you find now that you're investing, whether it's in, in, in European um, startups, whether any of that learning that you've seen through, through those companies which have you know, gone on that hyper-growth hyper journey in the US and now obviously being at an international company like Wise, which is headquartered in London, whether anything there you see is like in, impacts or provides you with a kind of insight that, that helps with your angel investing. I've got about 50 investments across the ecosystem. And this is just like direct deals or like some or you list deals. And then this is besides my investments as an LP in other deals, like in other venture funds and stuff. So that's, that's separate. And if I look at my portfolio, like, um, yeah, you're right. A large portion of that is U- US and Europe. I would say the later last few years, more, more in Europe because I've been spending more time there. Also, a lot of people I've invested in come through my network. Some of them are ex-wisers who've gone on to build companies. I know them. I know what they can build. So obviously that is a bias around funding people you know a little bit. Um, and then there's a few in Asia. Living in Europe uh, has made me a better investor and a better global thinker. Because in the US, so I, you know, my previous, before I spent time with Wise in Europe, all my time was in the Bay Area. And I actually was of the, you know, belief that if you're going to build a company, you just have to move to San Francisco, right? And so I believed in that meme. And now, obviously, I disbelieve in it because we've built a company which is not based in San Francisco. We still don't have one employee in San Francisco, right? And it's, uh, you know, $8 billion, $9 billion business now. Um, so yeah, so I think... Um, it's made me a more well-rounded investor. And also, I'll give you an example. Um, so one of the founders uh, that I've invested in is uh, Martin Sock and Mikhail Amer. They're building uh, Lightyear. So it's an investment app in Europe, and they're XYZ. So I work with Mikhail and I work closely building some of the engineering of uh, tech in Wise, and Martin was on the product side, and we work very closely together. We're very good friends. But initially, when Martin pitched me the idea, I thought it was dumb. So the idea was, um, hey, we're going to help. We're going to build a Robin Hood clone, basically, in Europe. And I was like, why? That's easy to build. Why would you spend years? You're so smart. You should stop doing this stuff. Like, you should be doing something else. Like, I was trying to walk him out of it. And I also had my own belief, which is, um, so I was pretty early at wealth trend and betterment as an investor. So I believe in this diversified approach of Starting to forget it, like you know, dollar cost averaging, and uh, you know those portfolios, you know, over the last 10, 12 years have become decent size and I've done nothing. Right? And they are very efficient portfolios. Cost harvesting happens. That's fine. It's on setting and forget it. And my thing, Martin, was if you want people to create wealth, don't help them pick stocks. Like you know, just help them figure out how to save and put that money in the market, and that's it, right? And uh, so I said no in the beginning. He said, I would still love to be able to call you and have bounce ideas off you. And every time he would pitch me more and more. And then I realized that actually Europe had a problem, which I was not seeing because I had my US bias, because most of my investments in the US, given I pay taxes and everything in the US, which was 
there is no way to access the US market in a cheap way. If you do try to buy Tesla stock in Europe today, the stock is in dollars. You have to buy, if it's, for example, you're buying in euros, you have to pay FX margin on the conversion to buy. And then when you sell, you have to pay FX again. And brokerage fees are insane still, insane, right? If you are able to access the market in the first place. And most of these products are run by big banks, which are very poor products. So then I was like, oh, wow, the problem is not even like, forget about getting to a place where you're doing index investing, like it's further up the chain, right? So that understanding and that, I saw that then when I was in Europe and understood the problems that people were having and the access issue is a big problem. So that changed my mind. And I think if I was sitting only in the US with my US lens, this would have been something I was just like, nah, sounds like an idiotic idea kind of. And the other bit was pretty interesting, which was tells you how old I am. I was like, for me, financial should be stable and longer term thinking. And Martin's point was, you need to get people excited about what they're doing. Like, they need to fall in love with these companies. Why would somebody spend their time thinking about returns if they don't even, you know, like, index fund is not exciting. You don't talk about index funds at a pub. I mean, I do. <laughs> because you're different. <laughs> so I think that was your proposition, right? It's like, if you want to, you know, the mind of young people, you need to get them excited about but then actually it harks back to my first investment. My first investment was Apple when I was in college. And uh, I saw everybody's Christmas list, uh, Christmas list, shopping list, iPod on it. And uh, this was when the click wheel iPod was there, right? And I was like, every cool kid wants it. The kids who cannot get it, they are deemed to be not cool. We should buy this company. <laughs> right? so, so that was the thesis, right? Um, so it was not wrong. So anyways, I think being across, being in Europe, being a bit outside the US bubble has also helped me understand the geographical nuances of why would you not have a Robin Hood to solve problem in Eastern Europe, for example, and what are the challenges of building that? I love that that international lens, you know, as investors who, who sit in Europe competing often with US investors, I think that's, that's music to definitely to, to mine and Anthony's ears. <laughs> It's the, the end of an episode. We, we love to end episodes with, with a bit of a, a quick fire round. So quick answers, you know, 30 to 60 seconds each. Uh, how does that sound? I'm very nervous. <laughs> Don't be nervous. Don't be nervous. Okay, right. What is the most counterintuitive thing you've learned since you started to to angel invest. Being an expert is actually sometimes a liability. Perfect. Straight to the point. The next one, I think we've actually touched upon a little bit, but I'll, I'll ask anyway. Maybe we can do it in a 30, 60 second um, version. But what would be your top tips to angels wanting to do more international investments? Every market is a bit different. So try to understand from the founders why they are building a product which potentially exists in another market, but what is the local insight? I think most products, even at Wise, we build with a global lens, but there's a percentage of it that is local, and that local nuance is what drives the high alpha, if you get it right. So the last one, what advice would you give your 10-year younger self if you only had 30 seconds? Maybe fall in love less, but once you do, go all in. Look, I mean, your experience is inspiring to so many um, new founders and the ecosystem as a whole. It's lucky to have you, Harsh. Thank you for joining the show and for sharing your insights. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Thank you, Harsh. Sidre? 
No, it's not a dream. I'm an angel. Why would God send me an angel? Because God knows that everyone needs a little coaching now and then. I'm loving angels. I saw an angel. All angels say. Will you send me an angel? A smile on her face. We'll be in it together. But don't call me angel. Princess by an angel, girl. Girl. Girl.